From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Whether you're a journalist, a Bay Area resident, or just fascinated by the human psyche, it's hard not to get wrapped up in the Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos saga. Holmes was a 19-year-old Stanford dropout when she founded the blood testing company in 2003, mimicking Steve Jobs in both her appearance and approach to work. Theranos received a $9 billion valuation, then imploded in 2015 after whistleblowers and journalists discovered widespread problems with the company's labs. Holmes is currently facing trial for wire fraud. Alex Gibney's The Inventor, Out for Blood in Silicon Valley premieres on Monday, March 18th on HBO. When I heard Gibney would direct the feature-length film, I wasn't sure what the award-winning documentarian known for Taxi to the Dark Side would be able to add to the story. But the filmmakers uncovered a trove of behind-the-scenes footage in the secretive company, and Gibney also detours into the history of inventors and fraud, looking at Silicon Valley in new and interesting ways, including unexpected parallels between Holmes and Thomas Edison. The Chronicle spoke with Gibney at the Palace Hotel in San Francisco. The movie will also get a theatrical run screened from Friday, March 15th to Thursday, March 21st at the Roxy Theater in San Francisco. Datebook Podcast, thanks for listening. So welcome to San Francisco. Thanks. Good yeah. to be here. Yeah. Uh, were you here much for, for The Inventor? I, I, you know, I had a producer, Jesse Dieter, who was here the entire time, who lives here, but I would come out a bunch. Yeah. Fraud. I mean, it's oh, so many of your documentaries are about fraud. My first question, watching it, thinking of you making the documentary, is your experiences with fraud. I'm wondering uh, if there's an origin story, either yeah, probably something you, you saw or something you experienced. I mean, I've, I've always been interested in abuses of power for one way or for one reason or another. But, but maybe you know, the first film I did that got a lot of notice and attention was about a fraud. It was mm-hmm. about Enron. And and I think that you know it's I think all of us are frankly fascinated with um, lies. Mm-hmm. You know when we lie to ourselves, when we lie to others, and when people lie to us. So I mean that's what a fraud is at its heart is a lie. Yeah. And and then, but very often people get away with it, right? Um, uh, sometimes they get caught, and that's what m- allows you to see the fraud in all its glory. Were you, uh, when you were younger, interested in a documentary path from the beginning, or, or were you thinking about not, print? Not necessarily a documentary path. The family business was journalism. Uh-huh. My dad was a print journalist. He had worked at Time, Life, and Newsweek, um, been a foreign correspondent. Uh, and I think he expected me to do that, but I got the film bug. I got the film bug in college, and I wasn't sure whether it was necessarily a documentary bug. You know, I went to you know in college, you would go to all these you know before there were DVDs and or or even video cassettes. There, 
you know, there were these film societies, and every night there would be a film, and sometimes it would be a doc, and sometimes it would be a fiction film. Um, and you didn't draw those kind of rigid distinctions. So I wasn't sure it was going to be docs, mm -hmm. but maybe the interest in... I started out as a fiction film editor, but maybe the interest in... Uh, journalism or the, the family predilection toward it and then the interest in cinema, filmmaking maybe coalesced in documentary Do you remember your father's uh, uh, you know victories or, or happy moments and I'm wondering if that impacted you at all just as, as a print journalist and I was a courtroom journalist for years breaking a big story was such a rush and, and breaking a big story about something that maybe made a difference in the community was a bigger rush. Um, now you're going to tell me he was a movie critic or something. No, no, no. <laughs> he did write. I mean, he wrote, he was the first person to write a, a, a kind of popular book about uh, Japan that, that sort of allowed people to understand what Japan was all about. You know, he was, he, he was there during the occupation and was a correspondent there in Tokyo. But he did write a book about fraud. It was called The Operators. Uh -huh. uh, all about people who operate in the in the you know in that colloquial term. So uh, so he, he went there, but mostly what he wrote about was culture and politics, uh -huh. and and a lot of, a lot about foreign affairs and documentaries. Uh, was there kind of a breakthrough for you that allowed you to, to kind of sent you down that path? I mean, the breakthrough was. Um, there was a kind of triple threat breakthrough for me. I mean, I, I, I had a lot of lean years after I left UCLA Film School and would do the odd documentary. Um, and I did a, a series with my dad that was on PBS. But the first breakthrough was I, I wrote and produced a film that Eugene Jarecki directed called The Trials of Henry Kissinger. It was all about the dark side of Henry Kissinger. Mm -hmm. And one of the interesting things about that film was that it, um, you know, nobody would fund it in this country. The BBC funded it, and nobody would put it on television. That was at a time when cable channels were very much different than they are today. They were, all had to be branded. But we released it in theaters, and people flooded into the theaters. And it, it told me something interesting, which is if you can make a film that's entertaining, you can pretty much say what you want. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, I, I had the privilege of producing a film, series of films that Martin Scorsese did called The Blues. And Scorsese was a director, Clint Eastwood was a director, Antoine Fuqua was a director, uh, Vim Vendors. It was really interesting to see how different individuals, all with a very sophisticated sense of cinema, approached Nonfiction and had great respect for um, trying to find a truth, but at the same time, to do so with a sense of author authorship uh, and and cinematic vision, you know. And each one was radically different in terms of its style. So that taught me a lot. And then, with those two lessons under my belt, I got the opportunity to do Enron, mm -hmm. and Enron turned out to be a big success. And I was kind of off and running. Excellent. So from that moment and that success, um, do you have a lot of people coming up to you saying, have I got a documentary subject for you? Yeah. You and uh, 
And I'm wondering if they're right. I mean, well, sometimes they are and sometimes they aren't, or or I, they could be right and they could go off and do it themselves. But the the turn on for me is, you know, would it make a good doc? Mm-hmm. There are plenty of subjects that are interesting and important, um, but maybe that's a better print article or magazine article, or maybe it's a better blog. You know, why should it be a film necessarily? Because what I tend to look for are interesting and dramatic characters and situations um, and stories that are riveting in and of themselves. So that, you know, when people come to me with this thing, you should really do a film about X um, subject. Mm. I was, you know, my first question is usually, well, what's the story? Mm-hmm. And Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, you have a, a very interesting person um were you aware were you following this you know i wasn't i didn't follow her rise i have to be honest i i it that one had kind of passed me by but i i was alerted to it by richard plepler and and graydon carter both of whom had followed her rise and were very much invested in it Mm -hmm. and then they realized oh they'd been hoodwinked and so i think they they were interested in, in in having me dig into that story the um and I was interested, and it was a great story. I mean, usually these rise and fall stories are interesting. Why somebody rises so high and then falls so fast. Um, they're interesting for a lot of reasons. And also, I mean, Silicon Valley, had you had an interest there, um, fake it till you make it. The, I mean, had you been paying attention to that before, or was that something you were discovering through? Yeah, the- I had, and there's an element, you know, I had done a film about Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs and the Man in the Machine. Um, and there was an element of that film that really did carry over to this one. Because what I came out of in the Steve Jobs film was that Steve Jobs really wasn't an inventor in the classic sense of the word. word. You know, Waz and, and, and other people in the Apple orbit were more inventors than Steve Jobs was. But what Jobs was was a great storyteller. Mm-hmm. He really had an ability to boil an idea or a product down to a few words that could really convey it and to, you know, a thousand songs in your pocket, whatever, or those presentations that he would do for the new Apple products, you know, where it made it seem like it was in his living room when, in fact, it was a carefully choreographed stage presentation, you know, for the new iPhone. Um, He was a great storyteller. And that, I think, is what... And, and, and he connected with people in a kind of an emotional way. Well, Elizabeth was a great storyteller, I think, and she did connect also with people in an emotional way over a product. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, in, it's, in, it's investing the product with a certain emotion. You know, that the people had affection for their Apple products, and Elizabeth hoped they would have affection for the Edison. And she had an affection for Steve Jobs. She did. Down I mean, to the she <laughs> look. She, she there were so many things she aped in terms of, you know, she drops out of college. You know, freshman right after freshman year, she um, she has the the black turtlenecks, um, the siloing inside the company, the sense of secrecy. You know, all of which she sold as Jobsy and things. Now there may have been other reasons for them, um, and and this idea of creating. Uh, a, a kind of design aesthetic mm-hmm. that would rule the roost and 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 convey an impression about what it was she was doing, and she very self consciously hired somebody 
uh, from Chaya Day, who had worked the Apple account, a guy named Patrick O'Neill, mm-hmm. to give her that look that and feel of, of being like Apple. So yeah, she, she was all over Apple. But I think, sadly for Elizabeth, she missed one of the key lessons of the Steve Jobs story, which was that Steve Jobs didn't become the globe-girdling Steve Jobs that we now know until after he had some very big failures, notably Next. But then he learns from the failures in in ways that are quite powerful and surrounds himself with a small group of people who are very smart, very capable, and also willing to stand up to him um, so that there was a feedback loop inside Apple. Uh, and also some very powerful people who knew how to get stuff done. He knew it wasn't just him. Mm-hmm. And those were lessons that Elizabeth never learned. She never was able to listen to other people. She never was able to listen to people, you know, criticize what was happening and to use that to make things better. She just pretended not to hear them. I, you mentioned siloed and secretive. Um, I, I think that has to be a challenge for you as a documentarian. I'm wondering how much footage was out there. I mean, yeah, she appeared on on talk shows and there were very staged public appearances, but you have a lot of stuff in there that is not that way. And how, how much of a challenge was that? It was a huge challenge, and for a long time we didn't have it. And, and it's very frustrating when you know the degree of weird and wild activity that's going on inside a company and you can't penetrate it. Yeah. Um, it was really a frustration. Slowly but surely, we began to get materials, and it, and it, and it happens over time. Um, first, it was the audio tape recordings of Ken Oletta's interviews with her, and suddenly you're hearing her in real time actually lying. Uh-huh. Then there was the audio tape recording of the Wall Street Journal, you know, blowout between David Boyce and... Um, and, and the journal. All those were not the company, though. We didn't get the stuff that was really inside the company, ex- except for some outtakes of some promos that were mm-hmm. done until a couple of people inside the company leaked us uh, over 100 hours of footage. What does that feel like? It's like you, you like? feels like you died and went to heaven. I mean, we were so nervous. Um, as to whether or not we were going to get it right on up to the moment when we got it, when we literally got yeah. the hard drive in our hands. Uh, you know, we didn't know if it was ever going to happen, but it, it, it did, and that that was... I, there's always a way, but it's it's hard to know how we would have got there without that material. You know, I, I, I've read everything I can on this. I read Bad Blood. I've read all the stories and watched the videos. And I was wondering, going into the documentary, you know, is, is there going to be anything new, or is this going to be a summary? And and there were a lot of new things. And you had, I think, a new take on it. Um, certainly, um, bringing Thomas Edison into right. it as someone who who faked it till he made it. Right. Um, but I I think. <laughs> I couldn't believe it, the, and I'm going to get really specific, but the MC Hammer, you can't touch this video, and them dancing. I never thought I'd see anything no, like that. No, me neither. What, what, was that, what was that like when you oh, opened that no. file? When, when suddenly you look in that file and you hear it, I mean, you, you hear the song, you realize, oh, they're playing this inside the Theranos offices. Uh-huh. And... Uh, and then you see them dancing to MC Hammer. Do you understand what, why they're doing it? This, and this group of awkward people, dweeby in their own way, 
you know, to this pulsing beat, um, cut to these weird kind of cartoonish figures of all of them on the like they were they thought you know it was like they had invented penicillin or something like that it was crazy not to mention the sunny balwani fuck you cheer sure sure. Uh, that was another one you know and 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 these endless you know company meetings where they're stirring them up like the congregation in a church yeah i i was just even surprised that they existed just because it was such well a i think uh, you know sunny I, seems like such a difficult he was but cause. i i think they felt they were or they let me say they imagined themselves or elizabeth elizabeth imagined herself to be like was and jobs in the garage mm-hmm. so if only those guys had had a camera then sure well they were going to have the camera in their garage was theranos completely gone when you started? No, not at all. Um, And Elizabeth, uh, with whom my producer Jesse Dieter met uh, early on, or early on for our process, which was 2017. So it was still a going concern, and they still believed they were going to get more money, and if they had more runway, they were going to get there. In fact, that was Elizabeth's pitch to us, was wait till I'm back on top, and then come see me again. (laughs) It didn't really work out that way. But... um, but yeah, so we were, it was still a going concern, so much so that um, the specter of David Boyce and lawsuits hung over all, a lot of our potential Your witnesses. production as well. Yeah, and, and people weren't willing to come forward. Um, so you met, your producer met with her and she did. spoke with her, yep. and I assume that was looking for cooperation? It was. It was a, it was a five-hour dinner. Wow. Um, and... A lot of it was Elizabeth trying to get information from us, but I think you know one of the things that Jesse would say was that she perceived at the time, or Elizabeth presented herself at the time, as very much of a victim. Mm-hmm. You know that that she was a woman, and therefore she was not given the kind of latitude or runway that men, men would have gotten in, in a different kind of a situation, and that uh, you know. Which was a, which was interesting, from my perspective, in terms of trying to understand the psychology of all of this. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to also ask you about the the whistleblowers, uh, Alex Schultz and uh, is it Tyler Eric, Schultz, Tyler Schultz and Erica Chung. And um, how important to the story for you was it to have? have them i mean i i think what they did was heroic oh it was there it was heroic but it was also tremendously important you know both because they represented a different side of the youth that elizabeth holmes was herself touting mm-hmm. you know i'm young so i'm not going to be uh restrained by this old people's thinking about technology you know we're going to blow through uh old ideas like physics mm-hmm. right um, so it was it was important that they were the other side they were you know kids who were right out of college who joined that company with a tremendous sense of idealism and and in a very short period of time they went through a journey where they were there for Elizabeth and for her vision mm-hmm. um, and then they saw that actually um, in the pursuit of that vision she she had lost touch with reality, uh, and 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 they took it hard in, in such a way that that, it, that they rebelled, which was great. 
So George Schultz is your grandfather, right. and and well, that gave you have Tyler to stand up to him. You have to stand up to him, and also suffer the indignity of your grandfather siding with Elizabeth Holmes. Yeah, she had become kind of uh, a member of the family by all accounts at that point. You know, where she was his uh, George Schultz's kind of pet, um, and. And that you can't get through to your grandfather, and your grandfather kind of looks at you and says, what was he says in the film, you know, uh, uh, you know, she says you're crazy, but I know you're not crazy, but I, I think you're wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and despite all the evidence that he was able to muster, his grandfather wouldn't believe him until very, very, very late in the game. In fact, we have um, footage of Schultz Sr., in a deposition talking very late in the game after the Carrie Roos stuff and everything else has come out about how uh, utterly convinced he is that Elizabeth has always been telling the truth and always mm -hmm. would tell him the truth. Which is, a, again, for a film that's about the psychology of fraud, it's a pretty interesting moment. It's very hard for people to undo um, a belief system. Mm -hmm. You know, once you decided you're going to believe in somebody, for you to admit that you were wrong turns out to be very hard. How closely are you looking at her and the upcoming legal cases? And recently I saw, you know, again, I've been looking at every little piece of this, that, <laughs> yeah. that photos, you know, some photos showed up. She's in San Francisco, you know, with her dog at the dog park. How much are you following this? I follow now? it. You know, once you become, once you dig into a story like this, of course you're going to follow it. Yeah. So, and, and I'm sure I'll follow it through the trial. That said, I, I think we got to a place in the film that was appropriate place to end. Mm -hmm. You know, at the point at which the company dissolves and she's indicted. She and Sonny Balwani, her former COO and former boyfriend, are both indicted. So that seemed an appropriate place to, to end, but uh, we're still following. Do you consider this kind of a Bay Area story? Are there parts of this that are... Um Kind of specific to either the Bay Area, I mean Silicon Valley, and or, or is this wider than that? Well, I think it is um, especially of interest to Silicon Valley, and Silicon Valley is where the power is now. You know, that's where a, you know a lot of the globe-girdling companies are coming from. But one of the reasons I put Thomas Edison in the film, which seemed justified because her device, her blood testing device, was called the Edison was to suggest that this is something that's kind of baked into the system. Mm -hmm. And it's not just Silicon Valley. I mean, Edison was an inventor, and he was a tech inventor. Um, but, you know, he was New Jersey. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and he was doing something uh, that evinced uh, uh, that tension between, let's call it marketing and fraud, uh, you know, promising big, uh, and and then in the service of that kind of noble vision, being willing to do things like fake demonstrations, which is what he did with the light bulb, uh, and also to um, uh, he would he would try to buy off journalists by giving them stock in his company. Mm -hmm. But in addition, the other aspect of this story, and and it's also very much of a Silicon Valley concept that Edison pursued was. He was the first kind of celebrity businessman. 
And so he builds up his own character. He sets himself at the heart of his own story and casts himself in the lead role. Well, that's Silicon Valley in many ways. You, you know, you can break down Apple and realize it wasn't just Steve Jobs. But if you think about Apple, you're thinking about Steve Jobs. You know, you think about Microsoft, you're thinking about Bill Gates. Um, you're thinking about Tesla, you're thinking about Elon Musk. Um, so very consciously, Silicon Valley uses the, uh, the script mm -hmm. of the lone genius entrepreneur um, because it gives the company a kind of a face, a kind of emotional valence and a story that people like to grab onto. Dan Ariely, the sort of the behavioral economist who's in the film, who's also a psychologist, you know, talks about how stories are, a, are kind of the glue that holds information together. And they're, they're a glue that's made up of emotion. Glue, you know, stories appeal to our emotions. And if you want to like a product, it's easier to associate it with a person. Now, in the case of Elizabeth Holmes, she's this woman who's ruddered against um, uh, male-dominated Silicon Valley. She dropped out you know, as a 19-year-old from Stanford, she's a genius. You know, everybody's talking about her like she's Beethoven or, as, as, uh, or as, as one person said, Archimedes. Um, you know, this one-in-a-lifetime person. There's such a vested interest in promoting that myth, which is almost always bullshit. Yeah. But that's something that goes way back. Well, it strikes me, too, that in this story, there's George Schultz, Henry Kissinger, Jim Mattis, these people who have lifetime of experience sussing out bullshit you right. would think and they got sucked in too and so. two reporters I might add Ken Oletta and Roger Parloff yeah. Roger Parloff had been a, a a criminal defense attorney he had heard every excuse and every lie in the book and he had been a veteran investigative reporter same thing with Ken Oletta you know they had experience in sussing out bullshit but yeah. When it came to Elizabeth, she had a force of personality, a certain attractiveness, uh, and, and a kind of a mission that blinded them all to, uh, or, or turned off all, you know, all of their bullshit meters. Mm -hmm. What hope do any of us have if they, if they can't? Yeah, you'd think so. Her. But I, 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 on, on the other hand, they were kind of picked in a peculiar way. You know, she didn't put a lot of... Um, doctors on the board. Yeah, she didn't put a lot of medical technicians on the board, and I think that was on purpose, right? Um, but it also teaches you that the the really telling aspect of this story is if you have somebody who really believes in their mission, they can have a powerful impact on all of us. I think our tendency is to believe them yeah. uh, and to have a kind of blind faith in what it is that they do because they're taking us somewhere that we want to go. Uh, you know, Rupert Murdoch, $125 million invested in Theranos, and he never looked in an audited financial statement. Sure. Well, that uh, that's a good lesson to end on, I think. But uh, I greatly enjoyed the, the inventor. Um, I found it to be... Uh, very thoughtful and, and also very entertaining. Which, Good, thank you. Uh, and, uh, and I enjoy all your work and I appreciate you coming on. Terrific, thanks very much for having me. Thank you. 
You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to Alex Gibney. Our producer today is me, Peter Hartlob. Supervising producers are King Kaufman and Libby Coleman. Executive producer is Tim O'Rourke. And our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Our music is Mozart's Symphony 40 in G minor by Blue Dot Sessions. Read our columns and subscribe to the Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. San Francisco Chronicle podcasts are on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services. Listen at www.sfchronicle.com slash podcasts with an S.